All right, it's the middle of July, and some of you are fresh back from vacation. Some of you are getting ready to go on vacation. So let me warn you this morning, you got to listen fast today, all right, because I've got like three hours worth of stuff to cover. So if you don't want to be here until 2.30, you gotta, you got to listen really fast today. Here's the other thing about today is I'm talking about one of my favorite Old Testament stories that nobody knows. It's just one of those stories we don't ever cover. Uh, we don't talk about it in children's ministry, even though we should. It's a, it's a great story. Uh, I never heard this story taught at youth camp. I've never heard a Sunday morning message on this particular story. And I know when we get to the end, some of you are going to stop me in the lobby and say, I knew that story. Great. Good for you. 99% of the rest of us probably have never heard this particular story. If it's your first time in church or you're checking out religion or you're trying to figure out whether you want to go to church or not and you're sitting there thinking, I don't know very many stories in the Old Testament... Nobody knows this particular story. We hardly ever talk about this one. It's a great one. It's in Joshua 22. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to tell the story as quickly as I can. And then there's a whole bunch of application that we're going to make. And we're going to move through that really quickly. So make sure your neighbor's awake. Just kind of glance over there. Nudge them. Help them get some more coffee if they need it. We're going to move quickly. Joshua chapter 22 begins with the word then or at that time. So uh, some of you haven't been with us for the whole series. Here's where at that time is. The nation of Israel has gone into the promised land. They have battled for seven years, and they have conquered the promised land. They didn't chase out all of their enemies, but they're in control of the land. They've divided up the territory among the tribes, and now they're about to get on with life after that. Then... Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, those are names of, of Israeli tribes, you have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, Return to your home in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Again, none of us have been here every day, every Sunday during the summer, so we're catching up. Jordan River, promised land on the west side of the Jordan River. Nine and a half of the twelve tribes are settling over here in the actual promised land, Canaan, Israel. Two and a half of the tribes are settling on the east side of the Jordan River. Some of you remember, they felt like that was better land for them. They raised cattle. It was a perfect place to raise cattle. So they wanted to just stay on the east side of the Jordan. Moses and Joshua said to them, that's fine, but you have to send your elite forces in to help us conquer the actual promised land. You can't sit this one out. You got to go with us. And so they do that. For seven years, they've been battling and they've been fighting. That's done. And now the, the, the military men from the two and a half tribes are getting ready to go back to the east side where all of their friends and family are, are living. And Joshua, before they go back, has this ceremony, basically. It's kind of like a church service. He gets everybody together and says, look, I want you guys to know you were fantastic. You are awesome. You did everything you were supposed to do. You fulfilled your promises. You fulfilled your vow to God, to me, to Moses. 
you were awesome, great job, now it's time to go back. And then Joshua gives them some instructions. Which, by the way, just real quick, leadership lesson. If you're in leadership in any capacity, it's a great principle that whenever possible, commend, then command. Commend, then command. Whenever possible, if you're a a teacher, if you're a boss, if you have people that work under you, if you're a parent... Tell them what they did right first. Like, hey, you did a great job. It's what Joshua was doing. You did a great job for these seven years. Now, I, I want to give you some instruction going forward. Here's something I need you to work on. Great leadership principle. Commend first, then command. And, and here are the commands that Joshua gives. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to keep His commands, to hold fast to Him and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Joshua seems to have this concern. As you're going back across the Jordan River, you're going to be away from us. You're going to be away from the people that you've stood beside, where, where you've learned and listened to the commands of God. You're going to be on the other side of the river from where we worship. We worship at the tabernacle, and and it's in a specific location. And you're going to be all the way on the other side of the river. And I'm concerned, Joshua was saying, I'm concerned that your heart might wander from God. Because we know it's true that distance always creates a challenge to following God. Whenever we go away, there's like that added tension. There's that added pull away from God. If you went away to college, you know what this was like. Like there was, a, there was a potential to wander away from God that had not been there when you lived at home. When you worshipped with your, your parents and your family. And then you go away and you're on your own and it's up to you whether you go to church or not. That's, a, that's another level of tension. And some of us managed that tension well when we went to college, and some of us didn't manage that tension well, distance was a big part of that. We're no longer under the accountability. Our our parents are no longer setting the parameters. It's a challenge. Distance creates a challenge. When you move to a new city, oftentimes spiritual routine is one of the last one you get to. Because you got a new job and you're trying to find where the grocery store is and how to get to Walmart and get the kids enrolled in school. You're trying to get life going and a week turns into a month and turns into six months before you think, hey, we need to get back into church. Distance just always creates a challenge. If you're you're newly married, that transition creates a challenge to prioritizing spiritual life. Distance does this. If you're in between churches, and I know that some of you, some of you are trying to figure out where are we going to plug in. We know we're not supposed to be at the church we were at, but we don't know where we're supposed to be. That transition between churches is is a distance because you're no longer connected where you were, but you're not fully connected where you're going yet. That creates a challenge. Distance always does this. Joshua seems to be worried about that. So he says, hey, listen, when you go over there, keep your heart here. Like, keep your heart close to God. Even though you're traveling away, like, keep your heart right with God. And then he tells them, when you get home, divide up all the resources that you've gained over these last seven years of conquering. You, you've accumulated some resources and some wealth. And when you get back home, 
share that with everybody. It was an act of unity. Because they could go back home and say, look, we're the ones who did the fighting. Okay, We're the ones who risked our lives. You guys were over here the whole time. We were over there fighting. We're not sharing. And Joshua said, no, 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 no. They protected your families while you were gone. They raised your crops and took care of your cattle. They defended your family against people who would attack them. They had work to do too. So when you get home, divide up all the resources. This is an act, a symbol of unity. Look, we're one nation. It's not us against them. We're all together. And you need to reflect that. So the fighting men from the two and a half tribes begin their journey to cross the Jordan River. And on the way back... They engage in a building project. It's told beginning in verse 10. When they came to Galiloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites, in other words, the people who were living on the west side in the promised land, and when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Galiloth near the Jordan River on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. And, and as you're reading the story, my response at that point is, whoa, 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 this escalated quickly. I mean, we were just having this nice service, and Joshua was just telling them, hey, you're great people. We love you. You've been so faithful, and now they want to kill each other? Joshua had just referred to them as our fellow Israelites. What happened... To cause them to go from zero to a hundred so fast. We're ready to go to war. We're ready to take you on. Well, in verses 13 through 20, we find out, and I'm just going to sum it up. By building this altar, the nine and a half tribes had perceived certain things. There were three of them, actually. One of them was, building a second altar violated the commands of God. Like the people who were living over here in the promised land, they knew that Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 17, God said, you're only supposed to build an altar where I tell you to build an altar. You're only supposed to sacrifice for sins where I tell you. You don't get to just build it wherever you want. And the Levites have to do the sacrifice. There's a particular way it's supposed to be done. And God says, I expect you to do it my way every time. I expect you to obey what I told you. So the nine and a half tribes know that they're disobeying God. Like they haven't even gotten home yet. And they're already disobeying God. Secondly, to the nine and a half tribes, their experience told them this situation would end badly. You read verses 13 through 20, they give two different examples. Look, we've we've seen this before. This does not end well. When people start disobeying God, it doesn't end well. Things get ugly. We've seen this movie before, and the ending is bad. Let me give you an example. This guy, and then that guy, and you remember what happened? You remember how terrible everything was? You remember how everything crashed down around us? Their experience told them, this is not going to end well. And then thirdly, the actions of the two and a half tribes could have consequences for everyone. When they mentioned those other two people who had disobeyed God, part of the reason they mentioned them was to say, they're not the only ones who suffered. We all suffered when that happened. All of us had problems. As a matter of fact, in verse 18, if you rebel against the Lord today, 
Tomorrow, he'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. In other words, all of us are going to have to pay for this. It's not just about what you're doing and how you decided to disobey God. God's not going to just be angry at you. He's going to be angry at all of us because he sees us as one. In verse 20, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. This was another example they gave. Remember this guy? He did this thing, and it doesn't seem like that big a deal, but it kind of led to bigger deals, and then he started lying, and he started hiding. And before it was over, a whole bunch of people died. In other words, you're not the only one that's going to pay for this. Have you ever wanted to say that to somebody in your circle, in your family, in your, your friends? Look, you're not the only one experiencing negative consequences because of your bad decisions. I mean, it's affecting all of us. All of us are having to deal with the consequences of your Choices, and that's what, that's what the nine and a half tribes are saying to the two and a half tribes. Look, you're getting us all in trouble. Boy, they're worked up, and they're ready to go to war, and I'm thinking the veins are popping out, and their faces are red, and they're putting their finger in their face. You need to straighten up. You need to stop doing what you're doing. But when you keep reading the story, here's what you discover. The nine and a half tribes... They have God's word on their side. I mean, they can point to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and God said this. They have experience on their side. Remember this time, this happened. Remember that time, that happened. They have passion on their side. I mean, they're ready to go to war over this. They are jacked up over this issue. They just don't have the truth about what's going on on their side. They've totally misinterpreted what happened. And they're ready to kill somebody over it. They're ready to go to battle over something they think happened. And they've totally missed the point. As a matter of fact, once they get finished accusing the two and a half tribes, those tribes speak up. Then Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clan of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. They choose three different names for God. And then they repeat those three different names a second time. As if to say, whoa, 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 we're on God's side. We're all, yay God, we're on your side and God's side and we love God. And we're not trying to disobey God. We're all about God. As a matter of fact, they say he knows. He knows what we were doing. He knows our hearts. And let Israel know, okay, we'll tell you since you misunderstood. And then they go on to say, if what you're saying is really true, then yeah, we should be killed. Like, attack us. Bring it on. We deserve punishment if what you're saying is what actually happened. But that's not what happened. That's not what we were doing. They say, no, we did it for fear that someday... Your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. They say, wait, 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 you're misunderstanding what we're doing. We're afraid that a couple generations from now, Because you're over there and we're on this side of the Jordan River. We're afraid your descendants are going to look at our descendants and say, y'all aren't with us. Y'all are not a part of Israel. Y'all aren't part of God's people. They were afraid that the Jordan River 
would not just be a physical barrier, that it would become a social barrier. It would become a cultural barrier, and it would divide the nation. Here's what's crazy. You have two people, two groups of people looking at the exact same event. Two groups of people looking at the exact same symbol and coming to complete opposite interpretations. You see, to the nine and a half tribes, this altar was a symbol of division. They're trying to divide our country. They're trying to disobey God. But to the two and a half tribes, this altar was a symbol of unity. It was supposed to remind us, no, we're together. And they're looking at the exact same information and coming to two complete opposite interpretations of what's happening. So, so what does that have to do with us today? Because we never misperceive things in our society, do we? Like we have just crystal clear perception on everything that's... Nobody ever looks at the same event and comes to two different conclusions, right? Nobody ever looks at the same hashtag and one group of people love it and another group of people hate it. That never happens in our society. Or does it? That happens all the time. People look at the same event, the same person, the same issue... And they come up with completely different interpretations. So what do we do? What are the applications to this story in our life? I'm going to give you a bunch, and I'm going to run through them quickly. Here's the first one. Be careful how quickly division can start. When you think about conflict, think about tension, think about interpersonal relationships, or family, or churches, or organizations, or our nation, or the world... It doesn't, it doesn't take long for everybody to get ready to fight, does it? I mean, some of you have been in churches. It's about that long, and we're ready to fight each other. Some of you work in offices. It's about that long. we got departments that are fighting against each other. It just doesn't take long for division to get started. And so you and I need to be really, really careful. Right, the, the two and a half tribes, they're on their way home from the church service and conflict gets started. Right, they just left this great, we are one in a bond of love moment with all the rest of Israel. And conflict has erupted. It doesn't take very long for language to become us versus them, does it? It doesn't take very long for language to become, well, this is the way we think. Well, this is our opinion. Well, you know what they're doing, what they said about us, well, it doesn't take very long for language to become us and them. We see it every day. You see it every day in the news. You see it every day on social media. You see it every day where you work. You see it all the time, this tension of conflict, and it takes very little to set it off. Next suggestion. Be careful when you get ready to go to war before you get the whole story. Just be careful. Be careful before you get everybody mounted up on their horses and you're charging after them. And and you really haven't gotten all the facts yet. You haven't really gotten all the details yet. You just charge, right? It's like fire, ready, aim. It's that whole approach to life and circumstances. We're just going to go. Social media kind of generates some of this, doesn't it? Because we feel like we have to say something all the time. 
We feel like we have to get on a side. We talked about that last week. We feel like we have to join this momentum of this hashtag. Because tomorrow it'll be a different hashtag. So I got to comment today on this hashtag. So I'll be ready to comment on the new hashtag tomorrow. Just like this. We have this need to say things before we get the whole story. Before we understand the whole situation. Be careful. When you're ready to ride into battle, but you don't have all the information about what actually happened. Be careful. When you're sure the Bible is on your side in a situation you haven't tried to fully understand. Be careful when you start grabbing Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Matthew and Romans and Revelation and like throwing them at stuff. And I'm all for using the Bible. Like What the Bible says is true. What the Bible says gives direction for our spiritual life and the way we think and the, and the way we act and the way we operate. And the Bible applies to our life. Verses apply to our life. But we also run the threat of grabbing our favorite verse and throwing it at people before we really know what's going on over there. Before we really understand what's happening in that person's life, we've thrown a Bible verse at them. Just be careful. When you're convinced God's voting for your candidate this fall. Be be careful when you're convinced that God would hashtag the same thing you're hashtagging. If if, if you haven't really prayed about this, if you haven't really understood the situation, just be careful. Be careful when you think you know someone else's intentions. Another warning sign. Be careful... When you think you can read somebody's mind and you know what they're thinking when they did that thing. That's what's happening here in in Joshua 22. The nine and a half tribes think they know what's going on. Well, they're disobeying God. They're rebelling against God. They're going to bring judgment on all of us. They're reading motives and intentions to this thing that happened. And they don't even understand the thing that happened. We do that. We do. They ever said to somebody, I know what you're thinking. And usually you're joking, like usually it's a light moment, but when, when something gets back to us that somebody else said, that somebody else told them that they heard last week, we can very quickly start attaching motive. Oh, I, I know what she meant by that. Oh, I know why he did that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I know exactly what he's doing. And we begin to attach intent and motives to things. We haven't even talked to the person. Be really careful when you've decided why somebody did something and you haven't talked to that person. Next, beware the dangers of fear and its ability to shape perception. Beware the dangers of fear. We live, I've had this conversation several times this morning in the lobby. We live in a fearful world. I mean, just this week. I mean, we we had news stuff last Sunday, and we got Turkey, we got France, we got all of this, all of these stories, all of these situations that are fearful. We look at them. But we have to be careful not to interpret situations and interpret people out of fear. Because fear will always shape our perceptions. In Joshua 22, you have two groups that are afraid. 
The nine and a half tribes are afraid that the other group is going to get them in trouble with God. They're afraid that they're disobeying and then God's going to judge all of us and it's going to be this big, huge mess. The two and a half tribes, they're afraid that they're going to get forgotten by the other group. They even say that. They say, well, we, we were afraid your ancestors would forget about, your descendants would forget about us. And so this whole misunderstanding is fueled by fear. And, and here's the reality. When you're perceiving a situation or a person through the lens of fear, you're almost always going to miss something. You're almost always going to misperceive something that's going on because that's what fear does. It shapes our ability to objectively interpret events or interpret people or interpret conversations. So beware of what fear does to your perceptions. Be careful of transferring events and emotions from your past onto people in the present. Beware of transferring events and emotions from your past onto people in the present, which is what's happening in Joshua 22. Well, you remember when so-and-so did that. You remember the other time somebody did that, and it was a big, huge mess, and we think that's what you're doing now. Transferring my experiences from the past to the present often causes me to misread what's happening in the present. And look, we've all got past, right? We've all got experiences and hurt. And we should learn from those experiences. We should get wisdom from those. We should be smarter because of those experiences. What we can't do, we can't in the current situation go, oh, I've seen this before. Five years ago, so-and-so did this to me, and I know what you're doing. This is the same thing, right? My ex did this, and now you're starting to do it. My last church, they did this, and it's starting to sound just like that here. I, I've seen this before. We've we got to be careful grabbing past hurt and experiences and pushing them into the present circumstance because they may have nothing to do with each other. In Joshua 22, those past experiences were legitimate. They happened. They were true. They just didn't have anything to do with what was going on right then. Be very, very careful. Next, be careful of the details. When there's co potential conflict, when there's tension, be careful of the details. Sometimes you just have to slow down enough to observe the obvious. I mean, sometimes it's like right in front of you. You just got to pause enough. You got to take a deep breath. Right? You got to not post anything long enough to be able to get the details. As the two and a half tribes begin to explain themselves in, in verse 28... They say, look, we wanted this to be a reminder of our unity. And they use the word replica. Look, this is a replica. This isn't a real altar. We didn't build it to be a real altar. Like it, you can't even do sacrifices at this place. This, this is a symbol of the real one to remind both sides that we're one. If you just look close enough, you would have seen. This is like not a real one. This is a replica. Not only that, it was built on the other side of the Jordan River from where they live. I mean, it was built on the side of the nine and a half tribes, which makes no sense if, if the two and a half tribes were just going to run off and do all their sacrificing by themselves. I mean, why would they have built it over there? And all it would have taken is just, hey, let's, let's look at the details. 
Let's observe this a little more closely before we jump to conclusions. Sometimes that's what it takes for us. Just take a deep breath. Just, just look at the details. Just look at the obvious. Next suggestion. When in doubt, ask. When in doubt, ask. For all of the wrong responses that the nine and a half tribes gave, this was a right one. I mean, before they actually attacked, before they actually harmed somebody, before they said the thing, did the thing, rode off on their horses, they sent a delegation out. They sent 11 people out. Say, you know what, let's have a conversation. Let's, Let's ask if that's what they really meant, and then we'll kill them. Then we'll attack them. But let's ask. When in doubt, ask. When there's somebody that you've known or you've worked with or you've been friends with and, and word gets back to you that they kind of said or, or did something that you don't really understand, ha- have the conversation. In, in Joshua chapter 22, one conversation prevented division. Just one conversation. And one conversation prevented war. And it prevented a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. Just one conversation. Let's have this conversation. What what did you mean by? You know, the other day we were just kind of talking and you said, and for whatever reason, I I keep thinking about that. What did you mean by that? You made this decision. Can you help me understand what that was about, I and mean, why, why did we change that thing in our office? Why did we change that deal? What, what, what was going on between the two of you? Because I saw this, and I don't want to jump to conclusions. Help me understand. When in doubt, when there's potential for relational conflict, when there's potential for tension in relationships, in organizations, ask. And in your asking... Seek reconciliation. Again, nine and a half tribes did a lot of things wrong. A couple of things they did right is they had the conversation. They asked. And when you read it, their heart was, hey, let's put this back together. As a matter of fact, they say at one point, if living over there is going to be a problem, guys, move back in with us. Like We'll make room. We'll redivide up the land. Don't live over there if it's going to cause all these problems. Come back over here. Come back and be one with us. Come serve the God that we all serve. Their heart was really for reconciliation, even though they jumped to all these wrong conclusions. One of the authors I read this week had a great line. He said they were wrong-headed but right-hearted. They were wrong-headed, like their imagination is just going everywhere, and they're going to war, and what are they thinking and accusing and... But, but at their heart, they wanted to be reconciled. And if you're going to miss one of those two, if you're going to miss the head or the heart, miss the head. All right? Just be wrong-headed but right-hearted. Be best to be both. Be best to be right-headed and right-hearted. But if you can only be one, have a heart in conflict, in tension, in division that desires to be reconciled. And not just the nine and a half tribes. The two and a half tribes had a heart for reconciliation too. Right? Because if you're on that side, it would be really easy to say, I cannot believe you thought that about me. I cannot believe you thought that's what I was doing. I cannot believe. That wasn't their response either. Their response is, oh, no, let's have the conversation. 
Let me tell you what we were doing. We didn't mean that at all. That's not what we were trying to do. We want to be reconciled too. As a matter of fact, this whole symbol is supposed to be a symbol of unity. Seek reconciliation. Consider the damage that could be done by your response. I mean, when you, when you got the weapons loaded and you're like ready to let them have it and you're about to fire off that post to Facebook and set everything straight because that's a great way to handle conflict resolution. When you're get ready to do all of that, think about where this could go. Think, think about the implications. If you don't handle this well, kind of a summation statement in verse 33 it's kind of funny to me. This is now the nine and a half tribes. They've heard the story. They've had the conversation. They were glad to hear the report and praise God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. Okay, we're not going to kill you now. We're, this, we're about to kill you. We're going to wipe out your whole family, all your little kids. We're going to kill everybody. We're not going to kill you anymore. But that's how close they were to really serious consequence, all because they misunderstood the situation. Before you fly off the handle, before you tweet, just think, boy, there could be some real consequences here. This could hurt a lot of people. If we handle this that way, instead of having the conversation, this could get ugly. Last thought, choose to fill the gap with trust. Choose to fill the gap with trust. And just confidentially, I straight off ripped this off from Andy Stanley. So if you want to hear a great message, Google fill the gap with trust, Andy Stanley. Great, better than this message. It's a great message. But here's his point. Here's the idea. When my expectations of our relationship are not met. That creates a gap between what I expected from you and what actually happened. It creates a gap. And I'm going to fill that gap with something. It, if word gets back to me that you said something hurtful about me, there's a gap, right? Because I haven't talked to you yet. And I will fill that gap with suspicion or cynicism, or anger, or like I'll start getting my defense ready, I'll start getting ready to go to war, or I'll fill that gap with trust until we talk. I'll say, you know what? They're a friend of mine. Like We've, we've never had this sort of conflict before. I, I must be missing some part of the conversation. I must not have all of the information. And so until we can have the conversation, I'm going to trust that there's something I don't know about what they did or what they said or something's being misperceived. I'm going to trust until we can talk. Other, otherwise, I, I, I'm getting my response ready. I'm getting angry. I'm, I, I'm distancing myself. I'm becoming fearful. When there's conflict, when, when my expectations are, are, are not met because of something that somebody said or did... Until we have the conversation, I'm going to choose to fill that gap with trust. That's not easy to do. This, 
This idea of conflict resolution and, and, and relational tension is something we deal with all the time. Organizations, offices, churches, marriages, friendships, all the time. Because it's so easy to slip into this conflict. Us versus them happens so quickly. And so here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about your relationships. I want you to think about your life and your past. My question is, do you tend to build monuments of unity or do you tend to build monuments of division? And when you look at your relationships, past 5, 10, 15 years, what's the consistent marker? Is it unity? Is it reconciliation? Is it division? Because, just to be honest with you, before we go, if you look back at your life and there's like this constant string of conflict, there's this constant string of division, my guess is you're the common denominator, not to hurt your feelings, but I mean, you're the one that was in all of those relationships. And if like every six months, there's this string of 15 instances where there was conflict and conflict and conflict and conflict and maybe you need to address how you're handling tension and disagreement and relationship because we need to be people who build monuments of unity let's pray God thank you for just a, a clear little story of how quickly conflict starts and how quickly motives get misperceived and actions and words get twisted and we thought you said and I didn't say that and she said and we overheard and our relationships get all tangled up and and sometimes we're in such a hurry to respond we're in such a hurry to fight back we don't look at the obvious. We, we don't have the conversation. We don't, we don't extend any trust. Our hearts even don't go toward reconciliation. We, we go toward fear and defense and distance. God, we're, we're living in a world that's divided. Globally, nationally. Divided in so many ways. We have to be people of peace. We have to be people who know your word and love your word and appropriately engage with your word. But we don't use your word and we, we don't use our, our own politics or our own side or our own belief to build up walls of division. We seek to reconcile in the way that Jesus reconciles people to himself through love and service and grace and giving. Help us to be people who build monuments to unity. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.